Well, it's good to be back in front of you, Redeemer. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 120. We're making our way through the Psalms of Ascent this summer. And so last week, we started with Psalm 122, and that's an arrival psalm. That's the psalm where the pilgrims actually arrive in Jerusalem. But this is the, actually the first psalm. I think this psalm awakens longing and desire for the land of God. Psalm 120, a song of ascent, and my distress I call to the Lord, and he answered me, deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell in, among the tents of Kadar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Pray with me. Our Father, uh, we need you. That this moment can go off course in a myriad of ways that we're warned that the word of God can be peddled for profit, that the word of God can be taught to make followers of the preacher and not of the Christ that the preacher should point us to, that danger could come even in the hearts of hearers, that Satan can snatch the word of God away, that we can be so consumed with the cares and distractions of this world that your word does not enter into the crevices of our hearts and bear fruit, fruit that lasts. And so as the preacher needs the work of the Spirit to purify motives, to rightly divide the word of truth, so do the hearers of your word. We need you, God, to quicken our spirits, to capture our affections, to cause us to focus in a world where we're distracted with pings and with breaking news, and these things pull our attention away from people into devices, into sound bites. And so would you help us in this hour, in this moment, to focus not upon me, but upon you, that Christ will be exalted. Pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Have you ever been homesick? Um, perhaps you're a, a kid, and this is your first time going to camp, and your parents have dropped you off, and you have a week of them not being with you or you not being with them, and that first few days, it's, it's miserable that you want to go home. And when you are allowed to have that one phone call at camp, um, you're depressed, you're sad, you, you long to be at home. Or maybe you're a college student, you're graduating and you are heading to college out of state and you'll learn what it means to be in a new city, to not have friends, to not have mom or dad washing your clothes, to not have food prepared uh, on a table. Uh, you'll be eating out of a cafeteria, and you may be homesick. 
Or maybe you've been on corporate travel and you've been away for a week and you just miss the smell of your home. You miss your people. You miss your pillow. You miss your bed. Or maybe you've been deployed overseas, as a friend of mine was, for nine months. And he lamented being in a new land with a new language, a new culture. He wanted to be home. In our passage, we're going to meet a man who is homesick. He's homesick. He wants to be in Jerusalem. He wants to be there with God's people. And he is not in a good place. That he actually tells us that he is sojourning in a distant land. And it's kind of what I talked about last week, that it's usually a dissatisfaction with this world that makes home with Jesus all the more beautiful and precious. And we're, we're meeting a man. Notice the individuality of the song. In my distress, I called, woe to me that I do this. In other words, we're giving a bird's eye view into the heart of one pilgrim. But isn't his experience our experience? Have we not longed for home? And I don't mean earthly Jerusalem. I mean the new Jerusalem, the one that's coming down from above. And unlike homesickness in this world where we've seen this place, we've smelled our old home, we've been with people in our old home, our orientation towards the new Jerusalem, it works a different way, doesn't it? We've not seen it with our own eyes. We've not met, you know, who we will be and who people will be. And yet, as we read about this new home in Scripture, We hear about the streets, we hear about the beauty, we hear about the water, we hear about the leaves, we hear about the absence of sin, we hear about the absence of death, we hear about fitting in with the family of God forever, we hear about beholding Jesus face to face, we hear about worshiping and enjoying him and this new creation forever and ever and ever. And so it works differently, right? On this earth, we are homesick because of what we have physically experienced. But the homesickness for the true home for the Christian, it comes by the word and it comes through faith. Is it possible to get a portion of the future here and now? Or do we have to wait until we get home with Jesus to get any inkling of what life will be like? Or can we, as pilgrims right here and right now, be overwhelmed with the goodness of the future now, right here? I think the answer is yes, and I want to show it to you in our passage the first thing I want us to think to look at is the, the pain of being away from home. We're seeing this in verse 1 and verses 6 through 7. I want you to notice how our psalm opens up. This is not a happy psalm, right? 
He says, in my distress. So, so circle that. If you're trying to feel the emotional tone of the passage, let's not make this happy. He says, in my distress, I call to the Lord. Look at verse 5. Woe to me, right? So this, this, this something is troubling this unknown author. And I think this is beautiful because God doesn't call us to check our emotions at the door when we come into the house of worship. He wants us to be honest with how we're feeling and what we're doing and, and what's going on in our world. And so let's not make this a happy psalm. I actually think it's an individual psalm of lament. Now, what's bothering the psalmist? Look at verse 5. He says, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Well, where is he? Scholars are divided over where these two geographical places are, but we know enough from this psalm and other passages to know that wherever he is, it ain't good. Give you a few examples. In Ezekiel 27, Meshach traded with you. They exchanged human beings in vessels of bronze for your merchandise. Ezekiel 38, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face against Gog, against the land of Magog, the chief priests of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against them. Thus says the Lord, I am against you. And I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out in all of your army and horses and horsemen. In other words, he's in a land. It ain't good. What about Kedar? All the glory of Kedar will come to an end, says Isaiah 21. The archers and mighty men of Kedar will be few. The God of Israel has spoken. He's not at home. He's in a foreign land with pagans. Now, what else are we learning about the passage? He calls himself one who is sojourning. Look at verse 5. Woe to me that I sojourn there. Now, that ought to make some lights go off in your heads. A sojourner was in the the, the quartet of the vulnerable. Zechariah chapter 7. The widow, the poor, the sojourner, right? It's in that quartet, the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, and the poor. In other words, these aren't just the words of your average Jewish man. He's fallen on hard times, and he's living in a distant land where they don't know God. And how are they treating him? He says, when I am for peace, they are for war. Notice what he says in in verses 2. Verse 2, deliver me, O Lord, from, and I think you can put their in there, from their lying lips, from a deceitful tongue of another person. In other words, They're liars. They're deceivers. And they want to hurt him. And he's fallen on hard times where he has to dwell in their land. And he is being treated unjustly. Maybe he's there because when you look at Scripture, 
That's where Israel seems to have gotten some of their their lambs, and, and they did trading with them. Maybe he's there because he's out of work, and maybe he's an indentured servant, and he's worked, and they agreed upon a price for his labors, and when it was time to pay him, now someone is going to badmouth his labor, and so now he tries to maybe appeal his case to whoever might be just in that land, and when they do that, they start to threaten him. You bet not say a word. We don't know what's going on. All we know is he is sojourning in a foreign land. They're lying, deceiving, and they, they, plural, want war with him as an individual. This is the backdrop of this psalm. Isn't this our experience, though? We found peace with God. We found the one who is the truth, the way, and the life. And we expect, and rightly so, that people will be truthful, that people will want peace as opposed to war and division. And yet when we look at the world around us, do we not feel this? They're liars and deceivers out there. Those who are quick to divide, quick to say divisive things, to hinder peace. Eugene Peterson has a great book. It's called Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And he's he's actually studying the Psalms of Ascent. And here's what he says. It's a long quote, so bear with me. They smile so sweetly, but they lie through their teeth. Rescue me from the lies of advertisers who claim to know what I need and what I desire, from the lies of entertainers who promise me a cheap way to joy, from the lies of politicians who pretend to instruct me in power and morality, from the lies of psychologists who offer to shape my behavior and my morals so that I will live a long, happily, and successfully, from the lies of the religionists who, who say heal the wounds of the people lightly from the lies of the moralists who pretend to promote me to the office of captain of my fate, from the lies of pastors who get rid of God's commandments so that you won't be inconvenienced by following Jesus. Rescue me from the person who tells me of life and omits Christ who is wise in the ways of the world, but he ignores the movements of the Spirit. They talk about the world without telling us that God made it. They tell us about our bodies without telling us that that, that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. They instruct us in love without telling us about the one who loves us and gave himself for us. You hear what he's saying? He said, if we look carefully and closely outside of Christ, all we're going to hear is lies, and liars, and war, and division. And what about the father of lies and the one who was a murderer from the beginning? What happens when the chief liar is not out there? Or the one who wants to go to war with you is not out there? What happens when it's in your own thought life? or you're struggling to believe the truth of God's word. These aren't your thoughts. 
being attacked by the father of lies and the one who is and was a murderer from the beginning. That'll kind of make you long for home, won't it? That's where he is. The second point is the possibility of experiencing some of the blessings of home before we physically arrive there. Now, there's a progression to the Psalms of Ascent. This is the first one. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not even on his way in Jerusalem. He is sojourning in a land, and he gets to moving in the next chapter, so to speak. But here's the question. Does he have to wait to Psalm 122 when he enters into Jerusalem to experience a measure of home? I don't think he has to wait until he physically gets to Jerusalem to experience the goodness of God. I want you to notice what happens in verse 1. He says, in my distress, I did something. I called to the Lord, and he answered me. He answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from their lying lips, from that deceitful tongue. In other words, the psalmist does not use his tongue to get even. He does not pick up the arms to go to war with people who want to war against him. He does something different. He says, here's what I do. When I felt what I felt and was treated like I've been treated, here's what I did. I cried out unto the Lord. And there's a word play in the Hebrew, right? This idea of being distressed it can be squeezed in or entangled. And so when he cries out to God in prayer and asks for the Lord to deliver him, he's asking the Lord to untangle me, get me out of this situation. And he could be praying. He could be praying, Lord, can you thwart their plans? He could be praying, can you let me make it safely out of here? But what's not up for debate is this idea that he is squeezed tightly and he wants the Lord to free him. And he actually says, he answered me. And when you hear the Lord answering you or the Lord heard you, in the Bible, that, that, that's never that your commands, your, your prayers just simply made it to the ear of God. It means that God hears and God himself acts. And this is powerful. And I don't think we always think about prayer this way. That this man, that's the only thing. You do not see him doing anything else in this passage but praying. Everything changed right then and there. He didn't have to make it to Jerusalem to be near the Lord. The Lord does not dwell in a temple made by human hands. The Lord never slumbers, He never sleeps. 
He gets to experience the presence and power of God right then and right there. Do we think about prayer as a mighty weapon given to us right here and right now? So a few days ago, we watched Percy Jackson. Um, I don't know if you're into those type of movies, but... We let our kids pick the movie, so we watched Percy Jackson. And he is the son of Poseidon, according to Greek mythology, and a human. So he's a demigod, and, and he doesn't know this. He grows up his entire life not knowing that he is half God and half human. And so finally, uh, the, the two other gods start to fight, and I won't go d- into all the details, but he finds out that, hey, you're not just a regular boy. And so he's given a pen. He's given a pen by this other guy in a museum when he figures out his new identity. And he says, hey, here, here's a pen. Use this when you're in distress. And he's looking at it like, this is a pen. It's a pen. What is it? It's a pen. And so he puts it in his pocket. And later on in the movie, he's attacked by one of Satan's, Hades' minion, and someone has to remind him, pull out the pen, pull out the pen. And so he pulls out the pen, and in the moment of distress, this pen, it turns into a sword, and it turns into a sword, and he slays the minion right then and right there. Do we think about prayer that way? Or do we say, it's just a pen? It's just a pen. It's not just a pen. It's what God gives you and I right here and right now. And it's powerful. And your Savior, Jesus Christ, has given you access to the Father so that when you pray in his name, by the Spirit, through the finished work of Jesus, Your Father in heaven, he hears and he acts. And there is not one place you can go on this earth. There is not one situation you can get into. There is not one minute, one millisecond of this day where God's people don't have access to their God through the finished work of Jesus. Look, we had to drive to Detroit this week. Karen's aunt died. It was unexpected. And we had to drive through six states, Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, Ohio, Michigan. You know what colored our whole trip? We didn't have access. We think COVID is kind of bad, like right here in our little city. But when you go to the embassy suites and they're not serving you breakfast, they don't have like the cool down, chill down, happy hour time. Their gym is not open. They don't do house cleaning. When you go to restaurants and, and they're closed, it was so hard to get food on a trip across six states. And it made me miss the access that we have when things are normal. How many of y'all think 
that going to God in prayer is like living in COVID-19. He might not let me in. It might not make it through. You got to know this, believers. You always have access to God. He's never closed. He never says, get out of here because we're shutting it down early. His hands are always open. His ears are always bent. His heart is always towards you. And not just you, all of his people, all the time. Do you believe that? That you can actually ask and he'll give it? That you can actually seek and you will find? That you can actually knock and it will be given to you? Do we believe that Jesus Christ has cut a path where our Father desires us? And he says, I know you live in a land of lies. And I know they treat you unjustly. I know it. But you come to me. I hear you. I'm truthful. Do you believe that? You see, I think you can make a case that there is injustice in this passage. The word sojourner, the lying, the deceit. And did you notice what this psalmist does? He just prays. praise there are other passages that call us to do other things but this passage the first thing go to God our last point patience to trust that God will both bring us home and he himself will exact justice And we're seeing that in verses 3 and 4. You got to have a big view of God here. Living on this earth, living in a land of lies and conflict, your view of God has to be bigger than what you see and than what you hear. And here is what we're starting to see in this psalm, that God is able to bring this pilgrim home and he's able to carry out justice faithfully. Last summer, we went to California and it's, it's our habit. Every summer, we house swap with somebody, a pastor friend, and we get to travel there and stay somewhere free. And so last year, we went to Oakland and San Francisco, and we were that close to like wine country, and so we went. We took, we found a kid-friendly wine tour, and my kids are like, a wine tour? We don't even drink wine. What do you take us there for? Anyway, we, we made them go, and it was a, a Benzinger was the name of the winery, and you can read on it if, you, if you're into that kind of stuff, but they're known for just the way that they uh, pract- that their practices at their winery. 
um, it's organic and it, it's fully functional, fully contained, very little machinery. But, but one of the most impressive things about that winery was a piece of equipment that they had recently installed. And it was a sorter. Now, for, uh, for a winery that's green, that, that boasts in the human touch and everything that they're doing, for them to have a big machine sitting out was impressive. And so the guy told us, what, 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 what does the machine do? And so they get their wine, their, their grapes, and all of their grapes come in this vat. And then it goes through a sorter. And they can upload, they literally can upload a picture of the perfect grape size and color and texture and once they upload the the perfect grape there are optical sensors all throughout this sorter that as it sees a defect it kind of pushes it to the side and goes into the discard pile and so all the good grapes keep progressing keep progressing keep progressing and then finally there's a dump there's a fall where the grapes fall and their little blow nozzles with air and they're, they're taking photos of all these grapes as they fall. And these little blow nozzles of air, when they detect, they've already been sorted already. But when they detect these other imperfect grapes, there's a, a, a mist of air. And it's just as these grapes are falling, it knocks this grape off. And then the good grapes go down and they become your good wine. If a machine can do that. Don't you think your God can do that? He knows how to let the good grapes go through. And he knows how to separate the bad grapes. Look at the passage. Because I think that's what's happening here. Look at verse 3 and verse 4. What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. That's judgment language. He is actually saying, I'm for peace and y'all want war in verse 7. I already know what my father's going to do. I know what awaits. You want war? You're going to awaken his arrows. And you're going to fall into his judgment. That's why he can be patient. Because he believes his father will sort it out perfectly. And he can wait. God will either cause those tormenting him to repent and to turn to Jesus in faith where God has carried out his justice or they will perish. And this is all in scripture. Think about this passage from 2 Peter. He rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. 
For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and he heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from their trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. That is what Peter is telling us your God knows how to do. He knows how to keep you if you're his and nothing anyone does or says can harm you. And he knows how to keep those under his judgment who deserve to be there. Therefore, because he's a big God, we can just pray because we trust his justice. We can pray. Doesn't mean we don't do the other stuff. But we can pray and not blow a gasket and not fight fire with fire and love our enemies and do life differently and entrust them, whoever they might be, to our God who will sort it all out. So here's my question. Do we have to wait until we make it to the new Jerusalem to experience some of that now? This psalm says no. You can have peace right now. You can be patient right now. You can trust him right now. He hears you. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We love your word. It is rich. It is powerful. It is beautiful. Would you, by your spirit, apply it to our souls? For the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen.